So good morning. I'm Kevin Griffin, and uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict, among other things. Uh, I'm also the author of a couple of books. George, you're supposed to be over there holding up my books. Don't. Uh, One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and A Burning Desire, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery. Uh, just to let you know, because I, it always surprises me that People come to my workshops and don't know that I wrote books sometimes. So, um, uh, you know, steal this book if you need to. Um, there are some seats up front. If people are comfortable sitting on the floor, uh, it'd be great. Uh, don't be shy because uh, it kind of feels like this empty void in front of me and I'm lonely. Um, I love coming to New York Insight. I've been coming here for years, and uh, the founders, Sandra and Gina, are dear friends of mine. We went through our first teacher training together uh, out in California at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, which is kind of my home center. I live in Berkeley, California. and uh, But I have a long-time connection also to New York. I was thinking this morning, the, the word that usually follows New York in my mind is an insight. You know, there's other words that come up, like, Dirty, or I don't know, loud, and New York Yankees, New York, New York, New York. That comes up sometimes. Uh, New York Minute, but New York Insight. It's kind of a strange juxtaposition. You ever think about it? I guess not. Anyway, um, <laughs> what else was I going to say that was really funny and clever? Uh, or something else? No, I, I was. Uh, Raised, born and raised in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is in eastern Pennsylvania, right near the Jersey border. And, and New York was always kind of represented something romantic for me growing up. And I, I flew into Newark last week uh, and took a cab, and, and he took me through the um, Lincoln Tunnel because, like, it was middle of night, and he said they were working on the Holland Tunnel. That was his excuse. But anyway, um, it didn't seem like the most direct route, the little that I know. But the... When you go through the Lincoln Tunnel, I'm sure you know this, but when I was a kid, we loved that, that there's a line where it says New Jersey and New York. And we would be, my brother and I, I have four brothers, but there was one who was close to my age. And we, you know, we would be so excited, like waiting, like watching to pass the line. And we would see the line, and then we would start singing New York, New York, it's a wonderful town. And you know, it's just so, I, I still have this real warmth and sweetness about New York. And now uh, two of my brothers wound up moving here to, uh, and uh, so I have nieces and nephews and family here and so I love coming to New York and I love teaching here uh, it's a beautiful space I think uh, and um, so so I hope we'll have a good day uh, I just uh, finished a week long retreat at uh, teaching at Omega Institute up in Rhinebeck which was really lovely and if you ever have a chance to go up there it's a great escape from the city uh, over on a beautiful campus. And uh, I usually teach a retreat there uh, in the spring each year. So, And so what we're going to do today really is very simple. We'll do some meditation. I like to essentially start the sessions with meditation and then talk about meditation a bit. Uh, I... I'll, a lot of the people who come to my workshops are in recovery, obviously, I hope, and uh, maybe working the steps and kind of trying to figure out how to do the 11th step 
which is the meditation part of the 12 steps. And uh, so that, I consider that to be one of my kind of uh, primary jobs. And uh, so I, like to, I really like to get in dialogue with people about, about meditation. Uh, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about how to practice meditation. And, and I just like to try to make it easier for people, basically, and more uh, useful. And uh, then, you know, I'll talk about recovery and some about the 12 steps, some about Buddhism. It all kind of blends together. And, uh, and we'll do maybe some exercises, some interactive things where you'll talk with each other. Um, and, and I'll say that, uh, you know, if you came here with something on your mind that you were really hoping was going to be addressed, please, you know, at some point when, the, when we're open for questions, just, you know, let, raise your hand, ask a question, or come up to me during a break and let me know that. Because, you know, I, I, this is a, such a huge, broad-ranging topic, and, um, or topics, uh, that, uh, you know, I can kind of get on my little riffs, but it's not necessarily what you want to hear. And so I'm here to, to talk about what's useful for you. Um, and I, I just, uh, uh, before we... Before we uh, practice. Well, one other thing I'll say is that the schedule is going to be slightly different from what it said on the. It's, we're going to end at four o'clock, not five o'clock. Um, so, uh, just to let you know. Uh, and so I'm thinking we'll take lunch break about twelve thirty. Go twelve thirty to one thirty, um, just to give you sort of a basic outline of the day. So this morning as I was kind of reflecting on, oh, what am I going to teach today, by the way? Because I I, I generally am pretty spontaneous in my teaching. Um, I just thought, we're all trying to control a world that's uncontrollable. And our addiction is this effort to control a world and a life that's uncontrollable. And that's what gets us into trouble, and that's what leads to our struggles, to our suffering. And that's what the first step is about that says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or drugs or food or sex or gambling, whatever your issue. That's what powerlessness is about, that that we just don't, we're not in charge. It doesn't mean we can't uh, alter things in some ways. We certainly can. We have... It's, uh, powerless is, uh, I think, an exaggeration. We have some power, but we're just not in control. And that's, that's frustrating <laughs> and challenging. And, and it's, I think a lot of recovery is about how we relate to that truth and what we do with that information. And then the 12 steps, I think, are a lot about how we how we deal with that. Certainly the question of power and powerlessness and higher power is integral to the, to the process. So I just thought I'd kind of put that out as kind of a starting point, a starting reflection. Um, and indeed, in meditation itself, people often find themselves in this same struggle, trying to control what they can't control, trying to control their minds, trying to control their hearts, trying to control their bodies, 
Now, how the body feels, the thoughts that are coming through, the emotions that are coming up. Um, and, of course, what we're really trying to do here is not get control, but to let go. To let go of the effort to control. Which sometimes we call surrender. But all of this language is, I think, risky. Every time I use a word like surrender, it's like, oh, wait. <laughs> you know, does that mean I just have to just let people treat me like this? Or No, it doesn't mean that. It's not that we give up. It's really about learning to discern with wisdom what we can do something about what we can't, which is what the serenity prayer is about. So before I go further into and spend an hour giving a Dharma talk before we even meditate, let's just begin to sit. So if you're new to meditation, we try to sit in a way that we can stay alert and comfortable. So sitting up straight but without getting rigid. We're not trying to impress somebody with how spiritual we look but at the same time if we're just kind of hanging out there's a way in which that energy shows up in our minds and our bodies if we're just um, I don't know the word slovenly comes to mind but I, I think it might have been something that one of the nuns said to me when I was in Catholic school so but, uh, Now beginning by gently closing your eyes. Seeing if you can just start to relax in your body. So we begin with an actual physical letting go. Relaxing the muscles in your face. Relax your jaw. Relax your shoulders. Soften your belly. Just having a sense of the weight of the body being pulled. So gravity creating this sense of density. Solidity. So with that release and that relaxation... We can bring a quality of ease. Just engaging with the present moment with a sense of effortlessness. I'm just here. I'm just sitting. not trying to accomplish anything, 
was simply trying to be awake and aware, mindful. Mindfulness means to be present for whatever is happening in a non-judgmental way, not judging ourselves or what's happening to us. In a curious and open way, just exploring what's arising in our experience, in our minds, in our bodies, through our senses. We use the breath as a concentration object and something to help us to be calm and alert. You can feel the breath in the body, feel the air at the nostrils as it comes in and out. Feel the chest and the belly rising and falling as you breathe. This simple act, this simple experience that keeps us alive and that we usually ignore by bringing our attention to this experience, we can begin to calm the mind and body. And just settle into a moment by moment experience of being awake and alive. Mindfulness doesn't mean that we try to block out any aspect of experience. Anything that draws our attention can be an object of mindfulness. So just listening to the sound of the fan 
air conditioning, that can be our practice. And I'd actually suggest that you try this and listen to the sound and see if you can hear multiple tones within the sound of the fan and the air conditioner. That is, if you can hear a higher sound and a lower sound. So it's this kind of quality of investigation that we bring to the mindfulness practice. And actually, besides following the breath, following sounds is one of the most common and useful forms of mindfulness concentration. So if that's more useful for you than being with the breath, you can use that as your primary focus. And as other sounds arise, just noticing them as well. If you start to become very attentive to sound, you will notice the sounds within your own body, particularly the sound in your ears, like a white noise. It's natural for the mind to wander. No matter what object of concentration we use, our minds will tend to forget, forget to pay attention and start talking to us. The basic starting point of our practice is to just notice when that happens, at whatever point you realize it. Just whenever you realize you're thinking, just acknowledge that. And then come back to the breath. There's no need to criticize or judge yourself or analyze your thoughts. Just notice that thinking is happening 
and come back. Come back to the breath or to sounds. And again, come back. This is our practice over and over. Of course, sometimes the mind becomes more stable. But oftentimes, our meditation is simply one of being with the breath and getting lost and coming back, getting lost again, coming back. It can even seem like a fruitless exercise. Part of the practice is actually to trust that there is value in coming back. That even when it seems that the mind is completely unruly, that just these few moments of mindfulness can actually have a powerful and transformative effect. This points to another key aspect of the mindfulness practice, and that is patience. We just keep coming back, trusting, being patient with ourselves, and being patient with the practice. the unfolding of peace and insight comes in its own time. Our role is to show up, to do the work and the trust in the results. We are not in control of the process.
keep coming back. Each time the mind wanders and you notice it, just gently come back and start again. When you come back to the breath, you might have a sense of tension in the body as well. And so to relax and settle in again. Noticing the posture as well. Often when we're thinking, the posture changes, the body gets more tense. The spirit of mindfulness is to engage whatever is happening. We often fall into the trap of thinking that we have to change our experience or fix it in some way in order to be mindful. And it's that very thing that we feel must change that actually can be our object of mindfulness. Is the thing that we can pay attention to, whether it's the pain in our neck or the memory that keeps coming back, the sleepiness that keeps descending on us, the restlessness in the body. Whatever becomes strongest in your consciousness, this is what we pay attention to. We can certainly use the breath to try to bring a bit more calm, some space around our experience, 
But be careful of that tendency to try to control and judge what's happening to us. So if people came in later and if you're comfortable sitting on the floor, there are still spots up front on the floor. Feel free to come on up. Or was it Monty Hall who would say, come on down? I suppose it's all a matter of perspective. Uh, I, I, got, I got a million of them, you know, so... Nice T-shirt. Those are pretty rare, you know. Pretty cool. Awesome. So, ah, we are um, working with the um, climate. (laughs) One of the things that we surrender to One of the things we are powerless over, although it seems that humans are exerting a certain amount of power over the climate in our inimitable way, uh, we're not going to let nature control the climate. We're going to fix it ourselves. Yeah, good job there, humans. Uh, So uh, in any case, uh, having the air conditioners on also means that it's a bit louder. Is it okay for people in the back? You can hear okay. All right. But it's hot. But if we open the windows and turn off the air conditioning, I don't know. You know, it's always something. Oh, well. Raise away. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hold back. We've gone this far, you know. Like you know, so um, I'd just like to open up uh, the floor for any questions about meditation. Um, after my instructions, of course, there should be no questions. So, uh, but if there are any questions on your based on your experience, yes, you're going to want to speak loudly, both for me who is going deaf and for the others. How do you keep from falling asleep? Uh, Get plenty of rest, exercise, eat a light breakfast. Um, okay, I want to point out, and I'm going to use you as an example, and I hope you don't mind, the, where this question is coming from. How do we keep from falling asleep? This is a question about how do I control what's happening? And that's the question that most of us have. Most of our questions about meditation have to do with how do I control my meditation? How do I make it be the way I want it to be? I'm falling asleep. That's not what I'm supposed to do. You told me to be awake and to be mindful, and I can't do it because I'm falling asleep. So I've got to change it and fix it and make it right. So that's the starting point is to see that there's something happening here. There's dullness, there's sleepiness, there's drowsiness. And so the, with mindfulness, the first question is not how do I change this, but what is this? That is to say, 
am, can I be aware of what's happening? Now that can seem, with sleepiness, that can seem kind of uh, it do, like it doesn't make sense in a certain way because sleepiness is all about the loss of awareness. But if we actually direct our attention to the experience of sleepiness, we can start to be aware of things that we've never been aware of before. And actually observing and paying attention to sleepiness, even even recognizing that it's happening, that it's arising, that it's starting to happen, is actually useful in a recovery context because tiredness is one of the triggers for addiction. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. HALT, the famous acronym. So, yes, of course, we want to not be tired, but the first thing is to see it before it triggers our actions. I know a lot of binging happens with fatigue, you know, food, sex, binges, uh, you know, alcohol masks fatigue. You know, if the end of the work week, you're really tired, what do you do? You go to the bar, have a couple of drinks. Hey, I feel great now. Um, so really, the, this is the starting point, is to really engage it, to see what does this feel like? What are the emotions that come up with it? How do I know I'm sleepy? It's interesting to actually take your attention into your body when you feel sleepy and say, what is it that's telling me that I'm sleepy? And it's very subtle. It's actually, I find it very difficult to actually point to the actual sensation. It's just, I'm tired. Yeah, but what tells you? I don't know. I just, I'm tired, okay? I think hunger is a lot easier to observe than tiredness. Okay. So if we can, first first of all, in our meditation practice, are there more chairs or people? There's Okay. We'll take care of you. Don't worry. Uh, let me finish this. So the first thing we want to do in our meditation practice is notice when sleepiness arises. So if you think it's... in. Because there are some antidotes to it. I'm going to get to that. (laughs) But if we we can notice it as soon as it arises, then the antidotes can be fairly effective. If we only notice it after we're like this, it's kind of too late. So one of the things we do is kind of, as part of our meditation and our mindfulness, is to kind of be scanning our energy. So we're, you know, we're trying to stay with our breath, but we're sort of also noticing, where's our energy at? Am I getting restless? Am I getting sleepy? Um, you know, is my posture starting to slump? I mean, if I notice my head starting to go like this, I know I'm getting sleepy. And so then, first antidote, strengthen the posture. Sit up straighter, right? More, more space for the air in the body. More energy when the spine is straight. Second antidote, open the eyes. When we let in light, we tend to stay awake. Usually when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is open your eyes. Uh, when you fall asleep at night, you close your eyes. 
So we're sitting here meditating with our eyes closed and our bodies kind of get the clue, oh, it must be time to go to sleep. So we have to actually train our bodies to not go to sleep when, we're, when we relax and close our eyes. Like, oh, it must be bedtime. No, it's not. It's meditation time. It's a different energy, a kind of you know, middle kind of energy. So there's opening the eyes, taking some deep breaths, sitting. Um, I actually open my eyes wide. The, the traditional teaching is just open the eyes halfway. If I open my eyes halfway, they just go, uh, and they just close up again. So I just have to go like, okay, I'm awake, great. You don't look at anything. You're just kind of looking down, but you just sit there for a while. And, and stay with the energy then. Keep, stay with the feelings. In other words, you know, feel what your body is feeling, and then you will see that the energy will change and it will tend to come back. And once the energy comes back, you'll see that you can close your eyes again and, and relax again. Um, but it's just part of the process. You know, we think, oh, I can't stand this. No, you know, just sit with it. You know, it's going to be there. It comes and goes. And if we say, oh, I'm too tired to meditate, well, it just gives us another excuse to not meditate. You know, we just sit. Sit with it, whatever it is. It's never perfect. Do you need to do something, Paul? Go ahead. Oh, oh, you're going to use the microphone. Sure, good idea. So, yeah, did you have another question? Or so you fall asleep, you fall asleep before you even realize that you're. So, I don't think the microphone's on. Is it? Yeah. So, so instead of. Sitting down and going, okay, I'm going to follow my breath. Sit down and go, okay, I'm going to follow my sleepiness. Just make that your meditation. Go, okay, I'm, lo- I'm waiting for you. I'm looking for you. Where are you? you know, just stay attentive to that. Let that be the focus for you. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. The chanting, Nietzsche. Uh huh. Yeah. So she's mentioning another form of Buddhism called Nietzsche and Shoshu Buddhism, which is a form which doesn't use silent meditation. It uses chanting. Um, chanting is certainly a concentration practice. Uh, it's not so much mindfulness is a little bit more about uh, an openness rather than trying to focus on one thing. Now, we need to get a certain amount of focus in order to be effectively mindful, which is why we use the breath. But the chanting um, is mostly just about getting concentrated and calm and focusing the mind on a single object. So from a mindfulness viewpoint, so when I say viewpoint, that's, you know, I'm not saying this is absolutely true, but this is kind of the, the viewpoint and the teachings that I come from. A, a concentration practice is limited in terms of its benefit. The benefit of mindfulness is that it actually is something that we can take into our daily lives and it gives us a uh, perspective on all kinds of experiences and helps us to deal with all kinds of experiences. It's not just about controlling and creating a certain pleasant mind state or calm that comes with concentration, but it's actually learning to kind of be balanced with 
difficult and uncalm situations. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot more that can be said about it, but that's, yeah. Another hand over here. I have a tendency of using meditation like a drug. So those like fantastic feelings that come from concentration even will can take me away from mindfulness. I end up uh-huh. feeling sort of zonked out. But that, those feelings are so pleasurable that I I'm grasping onto them. And right. Any suggestion? Stop that. <laughs> You know, from a traditional viewpoint, that is a kind of corruption of practice. I don't see it, you know, I'm not quite that hard on the whole thing, really. Uh, first of all, it's a whole lot better than most of the other alternatives for drugging yourself. Um, so, uh, you know, I wouldn't, uh, you know, take it away from someone. And it is part of the meditation practice and process that there's something pleasant in the experience. And, and really when we get comfortable with meditation, when we get... Uh, there Very often it can be a pleasant experience. We have to understand that that's not, not something we can hold on to. Because no matter how pleasant your concentration is, you won't be able to get there every time you meditate. And if that's all you're trying to do, you're going to get frustrated at times. And when you get frustrated, you're going to say, well, it's not working, why should I bother? And then you're losing the whole point of it. So we have to really bring the kind of wisdom into our practice, the understanding that, okay, this is impermanent, uh, I'm, and maybe seeing I'm becoming attached to it, and that I know that the, through the Buddhist teachings that attachment and clinging eventually will bring me to grief uh, with, when, I lo- when that thing is lost. And so uh, keeping some perspective then if you have that perspective and that understanding and you go into it and you're having this pleasant experience, you're like, wow, I'm really loving this. And, I really, and you're seeing... But as long as you can see that you're attached, then you know, when it passes, you'll go, yeah, well, there you go. And you'll, you know, there'll be a kind of acceptance, hopefully, of that. Um, but it's natural if we have a pleasant experience to become attached to it. You know, that's, we have these kind of ideals in Buddhism, oh, let go of everything. It's like, no, nobody's going to do that. You know, it sounds good, but I mean, maybe some goody-goody monks do it, but um, and that, that's that's rude because I love monks. But um, so, so uh, I think you know, I can say, well, stop that. But it's more the perspective. Keep the perspective, uh, and a little of what you're describing, though, may not be concentration as much as it is what we call sinking mind. So there's a place we can get to where we're actually... It doesn't feel exactly like sleepiness, but it really is. And your mind is just getting dull, and you're just like, yeah, this is great. I'm really meditating deeply. And you can kind of float along there for a while, and that's all very well, but 
not so beneficial ultimately. Better to try to pull yourself out, open your eyes, breathe, try to stay in your body. I mean, the fact is that you, you know, med- a, lot about, a lot of meditation is about balancing energy. And you ne- most of us are trying to just get calmed down. But the thing is, the way we live our lives, we're so stressed and there's so much, you know, we're kind of running on... Sorry. Uh, I don't know where that came from. You know, we're running on this frenetic energy, and then when we stop and close our eyes, it's like, crash, right? It's kind of like the whole drug (laughs) existence. So uh, with meditation, we're trying to find this place in the middle, and mindfulness itself has a balancing effect on the body and mind. If you keep coming back to mindfulness, gradually those ups and downs will start to flatten out a little bit in a good way. (laughs) I don't mean like flatline, but in a nice balanced way, in a way of feeling easeful but still awake. And it just takes time. And again, you have to trust the process. And rather than you going, well, I really like this, I'm just going to keep doing this, kind of going, okay, well, the teaching is to do this. I'm just going to, you know, really try to bring a little bit more energy and raise my energy up and then see if I can get to that place, you know. So work with it. If, I, um, if the breath is, uh, I could let go of the breath as the um, focus of causing that I wouldn't say that the breath was causing that effect. The breath can the breath can actually be energizing and calming. You know, the in and the way I see it, kind of the yin yang of breath is that the in breath is the energizing aspect of breath and the out breath is the relaxing aspect of breath so one of the things you can do is focus more on the in breath and just kind of feel that in in and just kind of feel it the in breath lifting you and and again the ops then when you're when you're feeling restless or tense is focus on out breath out breath maybe making the in breath a little longer when you're trying to energize yourself or making the out-breath longer when you're trying to calm. Yeah. But again, realizing, watching out for that, I'm trying to control it thing. You know? So along with all of these efforts, there, has, there needs to be this just what is happening. There's effort and, there's, and this is just what is right now. So I saw a hand go up over here. Yeah. I mean, I want you to start again because I didn't get the beginning of it. Um, I hear in the rooms a lot. In the rooms, you're referring to 12-step? 12-step Okay. People saying, oh, yeah, I've really been working on my meditation. You know, I've, I've really been avoiding it all this time, and now I'm going to really try. And, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten to I'm doing, like, two minutes. So yeah. I'm going to work up to five minutes. Uh-huh. And um, so, you know, I think that's okay. I'm, with, I'm, I'm down with that because that, that helps me at least get started. But... Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, how long does it take to become enlightened? Okay, so no time at all. An optimal minimal amount of time. <laughs> well, 
you know, meditation operates in a, in a space that's outside of time, essentially. Uh, which doesn't mean that the length of time you meditate doesn't have some effect on it, but uh, it's what's going on within each individual moment that's more important than the how long you sit still. You know, um, Ajahn Chah, who's a great Thai forest master, uh, he kind of made fun of people who tried to, who thought that they just needed to meditate for hours and hours and hours and like go on really long meditation retreats. He said, you know, a chicken can sit on its eggs for just days and days without moving, you know, but there's no wisdom coming out of that. So, so it's not ultimately about time. Okay, and that aside, I'll talk a little bit about it. I mean, tradition, there's kind of a, I don't know if it's traditional, but it seems to be something we've found that it, like there's kind of a 20, there's like a 20-minute mark that seems to work as kind of a foundation period. Um, usually that's when, first of all, I'll say the minimal amount of time is the amount of time it takes you to sit down and take a breath to me. So if you do that and just show up, you know, that's what's key. Because if you go, oh, I don't have time to meditate, that's like saying I don't have time to breathe. You know? uh, and if, so if you can just stop for a breath, and, and set aside, you know, say, oh, I'm going to just... So one of the commitments you can make is I'm always going to sit down on my meditation spot once a day, and even if it's just for a minute. And oftentimes, once we stop, we go, oh, well, let me just stay here, for, you know, and, and you kind of feel that. So if you can get yourself started, that's really key. But then, yeah, 20 minutes is a really nice kind of basic period. And up and up and up, you know, Half an hour is nice, 45 minutes, that's great. An hour, hey, you know, uh, but obviously we can't just start out, you know, on these. So, uh, you know, when I first learned meditation, uh, it wasn't Buddhist meditation, it was TM, and they, and they teach you oh, sit 20 minutes. And, that, and I don't know if that ingrained something in me, but it, that seems to be a good kind of starting point. Usually I find that around the 20-minute mark, some, there's kind of a shift like there's a kind of settling that tends to happen, which could be, you could think, okay, good, I'm done, or you could think, okay, good, I'm getting started. You know, all depends how you want to look at it. You're welcome. There was a hand up over here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it's just becoming so habitual that it's making meditation so uncomfortable. Right. It's just this cyclical. Yeah. So what, instead of ah, just say to yourself, judging, judging, and recognize that what's happening is that your mind is judging your meditation, and and each time you do that, just notice I'm judging, I'm judging. And then come back. There's you know, it, I mean it's it, it's it's like we set up this model of how it's supposed to be. And then we compare ourselves to it. 
oh, I'm not good enough because I'm not doing it the way I imagine it's supposed to be. And where did we get that idea exactly? We really get it out of our own minds. I mean, I, I have to admit that the meditation instructions sometimes imply something. You know, we say, when your mind wanders, come back to the breath. And what people hear then is, I'm not supposed to think. But that's not the meditation instruction. The meditation instruction is not, don't think. If you do, you're screwing up. Don't screw up, you know. It's not about that, you know. It's really, and so, so learning to be gentle with ourselves. So really saying judging isn't enough, especially for you. You need a little bit more. Now, you're supposed to laugh when I say that, okay? So <laughs> I'm not really picking on you. The fact that you didn't laugh really actually tells me something. You do. A little bit of kindness to yourself. So uh, uh, this, is what, this is how I look on meditation. When I am meditating, I'm doing mindfulness. There are also, I have two companions. One is compassion. And the compassion says, this is difficult. And when my mind wanders and I judge myself, or just when my mind wanders, I see, ah, oh, this is painful. Because where's my mind going? To something I want or something I don't want. It's like, oh, I'm thinking. I'm spacing. So I see, so I have this companion, this compassion that says, wow, you know, I, I care about the fact that you're suffering. You know, it's, you know I, I feel concern. I feel care about that about your suffering. And then the other companion is forgiveness. Because I understand that what you're going through is a natural human experience. And it's difficult to be a human being. And to stop and just be here and be a human being without trying to do anything about it is difficult. And so I feel compassion for myself and I forgive myself. And then I come back to the breath. But if I don't have those two companions along with my mindfulness, it's this constant struggle against how I'm supposed to do it. I'm not doing it right. It's not working. I'm, why am I wasting my time? I'm no good at this. So really, just to have a sense of ease. So we have to see, we start with seeing what is. And what is, so that's why a little bit of like understanding the teachings is important because if we think if we think that the teaching is to do it right, you know, then when, we, when our mind goes off, we think, oh, I'm doing it wrong. But if you understand the teachings are everything is impermanent, I'm not in control, you know, I'm trying to train this unruly mind, then this happens and I'm going, oh, yeah, that's judging. And it's kind of, we take this very impersonal stance in meditation, of just observing what's going on. Like from this very objective viewpoint. Oh, okay, that's a judging mind. Okay, there's an angry mind. There's a sleepy body. And it's just observing that. Uh, it's, uh, we're c- trying to actually um, view our experience more from this objective perspective. And it, it takes time. We have to cultivate and train that part of us. It's there. We all have that ability to view our experience, but most of the time we're in there judging and interpreting it so much that we don't see that there's just an observing quality. So that observing quality is very objective. It just sees, oh, there's judging. Okay, judging is painful. 
I'll have compassion and forgiveness for myself. So work with that a little bit. Yeah, you're welcome. And, uh, you had your hand up over here. Yeah. Hang on one second. Yeah. Good. Right. Well, first of all, it's a it's an awareness exercise, not a breathing exercise. So we have to kind of you know just remember that it's not about how we breathe. I mean, sometimes you'll have a cold and you'll be stuffed up. Normally, normally, um, yeah, breathing in and out through the nose is what people do in meditation because when the body is at rest that's how people ordinarily breathe unless there's some obstruction if there's an obstruction then you breathe through your mouth if there's an obstruction there then you just fall over dead so um, <laughs> sorry yeah. so if you you know whatever part of your body you're breathing through you you know you just feel that sensation and and uh, as i said you can also pay attention to the breath and the belly and not you don't have to pay attention here, but wherever it's comfortable. But we're not trying to control the breathing, um, you know, to take longer breaths or deeper breaths or slower breaths or anything like that. Just, just whatever is natural, whatever feels comfortable. Okay. Yeah. See, if you sit up front, you get called on more. I just wanted to know. And then. That works. <laughs> How many did you have? Uh huh. Yeah, it's really annoying. I think it's really annoying counting the breaths, but uh, it's useful. So, um, a, a tradition counting the breath is a concentration practice, and it's used. Usually used like at the beginning of a sitting, if you're trying to kind of get settled and calm, is to do some counting. And when we say counting the breaths, the way it's usually taught, I don't know if this is the way you learned it, was you count uh, ten breaths, and then you start back at one again. And and if you get lost, you know, somewhere from one to ten, which you'd be amazed, uh, you go back to one and start again. Uh, Yeah, Personally, I've always found that tedious, dry, and annoying. And that partly might be because I can never get to 10. Um, So then I judge myself. Uh, But I will say that last year I was on a retreat, and I I had read somewhere some monk, you know, you read these things and then you get these crazy ideas, right? Some monk saying, well, in order to get into the deeper concentration states, you need to be continuously aware of 400 breaths, like 400 consecutive breaths in a row without, you know, letting your mind wander. So um, <laughs> so I thought, well, 400 is too much. I'll try for 100. So I just, I counted up to 100. I'm not sure if I was actually paying attention to the breath the whole time. 
but I got to 100, and it was very effective. Um, you know, I, I would kind of space out sometimes, but, but I was still sort of with the breath, and then I would really kind of come back. And because, you know, when you count, because we're so good at counting, it's like the, my mind kept counting. And so I, it, it actually was very, a very, and it wasn't nearly as boring as counting to 1 to 10. I don't know why. That was, maybe it was just me, but I'll, I'll just, you know, count away. Uh, somehow I, I've got, there's like a Sesame Street coming, coming through here. I'm not sure what it is. Count Dracula or something. What is that? Count something. I never watched it. I was too uh, old for that. But anyway. Uh, okay, well, I think we've really run out of, we're just at the point of silliness. So um, let's take a little uh, stretch bathroom water break and we'll come back. We'll ring a bell in a few minutes and come back and delve into some recovery stuff. Thank you. And feel free to uh, greet your neighbors, please. This is not a silent return. Uh, I actually love hearing everybody yakking it up in the meditation hall. I, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we, we have this sort of holy thing about, oh, meditation, you know, it's all about being quiet and silent and, you know, forget that actually our relationships with each other are a huge part of our spiritual practice of our recovery of life and and to somehow turn buddhism into just being silent is to really miss a huge huge part of it of course without speaking there would be no 12-step program so um. so i was asked to uh talk about higher power so i i will i'm going to get to that i think that um the day already seems short to me uh, well partly because I'm any little early but also just because I just got through teaching a five day retreat and I was able to really kind of take my time so I feel like I'm kind of speeding up here so it's just a feeling uh, feelings aren't facts uh, hmm Oh, now you're getting heavy. Uh, uh, so what I'm going to do is talk a little bit... Well, let me talk a little bit about uh, the Four Noble Truths because I, I think that was actually in the flyer description of the day. So. Yes, Miriam? I didn't bring any books with me, no. I just got a suitcase and a bag and, you know... Um, so sorry, but uh, if you go to my website, kevingriffin.net, you can buy my books, and I'll get a kickback from Amazon for that. Otherwise, you can go directly to Amazon or go to Barnes & Noble or go to your local bookstore. There's that place up on the Upper East Side, actually, a little store. What? Go there. Uh, well, okay. So anyway, moving right along. The Buddha starts his teachings by talking about uh, the challenges of life, of, of how uh, that suffering is a, a sort of fundamental aspect of of this existence. He talks about birth is painful. Um, that we get sick, we get old, we die. 
that we don't have the things that we want, that we do have the things that we don't want. And that there's this sort of feeling of unsatisfactoriness or not enough that kind of pervades our existence. At least when we're kind of living in the ordinary way. And then he says that that the this what we do because of this feeling is that we try to wrest satisfaction from this unsatisfactory existence and create more dissatisfaction, create our own suffering by trying to control this uncontrollable life, by trying to hold on to pleasant experiences, by trying to get rid of unpleasant experiences. And he says that it's the very trying, the grasping, that's actually causing us suffering. It's the wanting things to be different from the way they are that's the problem. It's the wanting to have that thing. It's not that if I could just get, when I get the thing, I'll be okay. That's, that's the illusion that, that desire feeds us. Once I get the job, you know, then I'll be happy. Once I get the relationship, then I'll be okay. Once I can get that nice new iPad, I just got to get that, you know, version whatever. But that if we actually look at our internal experience, what we find is that it's the grasping itself that's making us uncomfortable. It isn't the lack of the thing or having the thing we don't want. It's the not, it's the not being comfortable with how things are and that so instead of looking to the external world or to change something from what it is what we need to do is change our relationship to that that is we need to look at the grasping itself that if we can let go of that grasping that then there really isn't a problem so This is not to say that we don't need things in our lives, but that we create this additional pain by by being really deluded, by by not understanding how this works. So we can want something without grasping. Like you can be hungry, say, oh, I want breakfast. Or you can be, God, I'm starving. I've just got to eat. And it, you know, it's just how we relate to the experience. We're actually making a choice. We don't usually realize we're making that choice. But this is the subtlety of awareness that we're trying to develop with mindfulness is to start to, rather than be outward directed all the time, oh, it's all about that, to look inward and see how am I relating to that Am I creating suffering by the way I'm relating to that thing? And can I change that? Can I go, oh yeah, I'd really like to, that would be nice to get that iPad. That could be useful. That would be nice. And just kind of, okay. And And see that, oh yeah, it's okay to want something, but I don't have to turn it into 
a grasping and a suffering. So this is the first and the second noble truths, this fundamental starting point of Buddhism. And what the Buddha says then, well, I'm actually, I've also actually sort of included the third noble truth, which is, he, he says that if you, if you can let go of that grasping, then you can let go of the suffering. And so that, that, that is the statement of hope, that there is a potential for freedom, that we can actually be okay. We don't have to change everything in the world and change everything about ourselves in order to be okay. That if we can learn where that hook is and let go of it and find a way to let go of it, we can be free. And then the fourth noble truth is his path, his, his eightfold path that tells us how to do this. It gives us the foundation for, doing the, for, for letting go, we could say training ourselves to let go. And when we say to let go, I mean, first of all, it's another one of those phrases that's so seductive and tricky uh, because a lot of times it's not a, we can't find the hook or we can't feel the grasping. And a lot of times it's actually just let be, which is why acceptance is sort of so key in this. It's just, oh, this is the way things are. But also, there's a way in which it sounds like, oh, I let go, okay, I'm done. And it's not about being done. It's an ongoing process, right? Because we are so deeply conditioned to cling. We are so deeply conditioned to live in this way that just as with steps six and seven, they have to be done over and over again. It's not that you work the steps and then you're done. It's we see that clinging arises in new ways, in different ways, or in the same way over and over, and we continue to try to let go or to let be. And yes, there's a there's a training and a development that happens over time that we become better at it. We start to see more clearly where we're getting hooked in those moments, and we could catch it much earlier, maybe before we've hit bottom, you know. I think of, in some ways, our practice as being about raising our bottom by becoming more and more sensitive to suffering. So that rather than having to be, you know, drunk and hungover and sick, that that just feeling that twinge in our heart of, oh, I know I want that. Oh, and we see it arising and we don't have to act on it and take it anywhere. We just breathe and go, okay, let's just let go of that, you know. I'm rushing to make the train. And just in, that, just in that moment, you catch, you feel that, I have to get on the, you know, the train, I'm going to be late. And you see, oh, wow. Like, I can be going as fast as I want or as fast as I can and not like this. I can just be, okay, I'm getting it. And, and knowing that train's going to come, train's going to go. I might be there, I might not. That's reality. I don't have any control over that. My, this isn't helping. <laughs> no, it's not getting me faster. What it's doing is it's cr- making this experience be painful rather than, okay, well, be a drag if I miss a train, but whatever. You know, it's just real. You know, and, th- and that's not that, again, not that like, oh, I don't care if I miss the train. It's all, everything is one. It's all just, 
No, I mean, come on, you know, it's not that we're going to become these perfect people, but that we can kind of lower the temperature on our suffering, like, ah, oh, this is a pain, rather than, shit, god damn it, fuck, you know. <laughs> it's our choice. And the only way we can make the choice is if we are aware of the arising of the suffering in that moment, of the grasping in that moment. These, to me, are the simple little tools I can share with you, Okay. You probably already knew, but anyway, it's a reminder. And a lot of our practice is just remembering, right? The word mindfulness that we translate as mindfulness, it comes from a, a word in the Pali language, which is the language of the early Buddhist scriptures. And the, the word is sati, S-A-T-I. That's translated as mindfulness. Well, sati, actually, the root of that word is related to the word for memory and remembering. And I think that's because mindfulness is mostly about just remembering to be mindful. When you remember to be mindful, you can do it. The hardest part is remembering. It's not really that hard to just go, oh, right, I'm here. I can see things. I can feel my breathing. I can hear the fan. I can notice that I'm having emotion. Notice that I'm sleepy or I'm awake. That's just simple to just, oh, notice But to remember to notice, that's hard because the mind is usually jumping ahead and jumping out of the present moment. So sati, to to remember to be mindful. So this is the uh, the path. This is the uh, the basic path. And I will talk more about the Eightfold Path uh, in terms of uh, uh, as higher power uh, a bit. But... um, what I'd like to do is a, a brief uh, exercise. And this is a, a step two uh, exercise. And step two, which says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, is, can, it can be correlated to the third noble truth, which says it's possible to be, to be free. It's possible to let go. So they're both about hope, possibility, we could say about faith, belief. If we don't believe that we can change, we won't take the actions that allow for us to change. If we believe that we are fated or uh, cursed to be addicted or to be failures or to be uh, stuck where we are, then we are in pain. We are suffering. So it's the first step and the first noble truth share this kind of recognition that there's a problem. Um, But if we just stay there, then we're just stuck in the problem. And it's easy to get, it's easy to stay there. It's easy for us to have that despair. Certainly, uh, you know, life is difficult and and, when we see our own failings or our own clinging or our own addiction, uh, it can be uh, devastating. And uh, it's, uh, it can be hard to move past that. And particularly for people who've relapsed, it can be really hard to have faith in the possibility of, of making it, of surviving and staying in recovery. So this is a simple exercise uh, I'm going to ask you to find a, per, a partner to work with 
And, um, and each person is going to ch- get a chance to do this. So the fir- but one person will speak, and the other person will listen. And the, what the first person is going to say is, I'll be okay because... And then you're going to just say why you're going to be okay. And, and you can make it very simple. I'll be okay because I'm a survivor. Whatever. And then the other person is going to say, yes, you'll be okay. What else? And then you're going to say, I'll be okay because... And then you'll say some other reason why you'll be okay. Maybe not to make a long story, but see, whatever comes up. And, you know, I, this is really... I just want you to look at your own uh, ability, your own abilities to survive, to recover, to heal, to be okay. So um, just turn to someone near you, uh, greet them, meet them. Yes. Then you need to... That's not the question. <laughs> I mean, just do your best. So just uh, one person, t- decide who's going to go first, and you can start, and then I'm going to ring a bell in a few minutes, and you'll switch roles. Okay. So let's take a moment, just settle for a moment. Uh, take a moment, just close your eyes for a moment, and... Take a breath and and just notice all the energy that comes from speaking. It's very uplifting in a way. Also in some ways disturbing to the mind. Gets the mind stirred up. That's why we practice meditation in silence. So now you'll switch roles. The first speaker will listen and the listener will become a speaker saying, I'll be okay because... And you may begin. You can thank your partner and uh, come back. So how was that? What happened? <laughs> Are you, were you okay? Good. Did you discover that you actually will be okay? Ah, see, yeah. Good. Good. You were just fooling. Yes. I don't know. The microphone? Just, just try speaking. Oh. Say more about that. That's great. Um, Not wanting to believe the positive things about yourself, uh, you said... Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, well, this this brings up, yeah. I, I think something 
interesting because generally I think this is difficult for people to think, uh, to really take responsibility for, uh, you know, the good things about themselves. And, and I think that also there's a way in which at times certain aspects of the 12 steps and the program can emphasize negativity to a point that uh, it can be destructive. Uh, it, one, it, one of the ways is that there can be this implication that um, before you got clean or whatever your program is, you were just like a total loser, failure, and then God intervened and fixed you, and now you're good, you know. And so, and that's, from a Buddhist viewpoint, that denies the law of karma, which says that in order for you to get clean or to get into recovery, you have to have actually taken some actions, karmic actions that brought about that result. And so I think it's important to even recognize, this is one of the exercises in my new book, which isn't out yet, but... And I haven't written yet, but anyway, it's... <laughs> All right, I'm writing it. I mean, it's, you know, it's in process. But one of them is called Tracing Back Recovery and going back and looking at all the things that you did before you got clean that helped to result. Now, it's not exactly a one-to-one correspondence. I did this and this and this, and then it all changed. But, but we can see that we weren't just total losers in the gutter, and then all of a sudden it was different. It, we were all doing something. So that's part of it. And, and as I say, one of the things that I think can get confusing in the program, and, and then in the fourth step, of course, the same thing can happen when we write the searching and fearless moral inventory. It can be all about what's wrong with us and our character defects and all this flaws. And to me, that's a very incomplete description of a human being. It's important for us, clearly, uh, as addicts to acknowledge the way we've harmed ourselves, to acknowledge the way we've harmed others, and be honest about that, our self-centeredness, our selfishness. But if we stop there, then that can result in a really negative self-view which can support what's often the existing negative mind states, emotional states, depression, anxiety, all these things that many of us already have. It's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really a bad person. And so I think doing a positive inventory is part of the recovery and, and needs to be there. And, and for many people, is actually harder. You know, it's painful to write down all the bad things about yourself. It can seem impossible to write down the good things about yourself. And in fact, dangerous because a lot of us are taught that if you say something good about yourself it's either bad luck or it's arrogance and pride and ego rather than just an objective you know taking an inventory you know there's good stuff and there's stuff that needs to be thrown out you know but there but if if an honest inventory includes both yeah george It's okay. Um, okay. Um, with the difference between um, this exercise and a gratitude list. Uh-huh. Um, because I was, you know, I was comfortable saying, you know, I'll be okay because I have a program, I'll be okay because mm-hmm. I'm sober one day at a time. Mm-hmm. But I was reluctant to say, like, I'll be okay because I have a wife who loves me who I love. Because I was like, so then is the implication, if I don't have that, I won't be okay. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, so, but, but I struggle with that because I wanted to acknowledge, hey, I really love that I have mm-hmm. life, that I love, love, mm-hmm. you know. So, and, and there is, like, the, the gratitude list where that stuff works, where I can just go on and on if I let myself about all the great things I have in my life. I think it's a wonderful process. But the all be okay message seems to be that it doesn't rest on it. Right. Contingent. Oh, so are you asking me? Did you do it right? You did it perfectly, George. <laughs> you get it. You'll be getting the gold star on your way out. Well, I don't know. I. I don't know. I just make this shit up, you know. I don't. I don't know how it's supposed to be done. It just sounded like. I, I made it up last week. I was like, "This sounds like a good thing. I'll try this out on people. See what happens." I don't. I, it. It just seemed to me, you know. I. Th- I thought, okay. Step two says it came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore sanity. And if I'm not going to say that there's a God that's going to intervene and take care of me, then what is it that I'm doing here? Well. I'm believing that I'm going to be okay. And why is it that I think I'm going to be okay? So then that's why I just thought I'd just ask the question. I have no idea how it relates to a gratitude list. But I think, I think those are great questions because what you're doing, you're engaging in the question and then sort of looking at, wait a minute, is there something, you know, and, and uh, you know, these are places we can get stuck. I mean, absolutely, because then, you know, when you get home and your wife left you, which I, I'm sorry, I got a text from her and, you know, yeah. So, then, you know, does that mean you're not going to be okay? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think uh, it's a good, I, you will be okay, but not like tonight, you know. <laughs> yeah. But eventually you'll be okay again. But as, was it Keynes, who said, eventually we'll all be dead. And eventually the economy will come back around, but eventually we'll all be dead. So, anyway, sorry. That's, uh, <laughs> just checking. Um, uh, I, I want to get easy. All three of you people have actually already asked questions, and so which is okay, but I just want to see if there's somebody who hasn't asked a question yet who wants to ask a question. There's somebody.
Good, good that you realized that. That's called insight. That's what New York insight. That's great. Oh, it's New York. What do you expect? You know. <laughs> that is the realization, and it is mindfulness again that allows us to have a choice. When we aren't aware, we're just running on automatic pilot, all our conditioning, and you know, you know, all that stuff to ourselves and to others. And when we wake up and go, oh, this is what I'm doing, and actually, do I? Is this what I want to do? You know, it's called right intention. You know, do I want to like hate myself and hate everybody else, or just be you know judging myself and judging everybody else? Oh no, actually, I don't because it's uncomfortable. So now I have this choice because I'm aware of it. I can actually intentionally go, oh, I'm not that bad, and oh, they're not that bad, and just kind of, and it's a huge, huge shift, and it's a huge letting go. Uh, very powerful, and that's what this practice is about. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate your also your sense of expansiveness and sense of kind of willingness to explore. And I think that um, this is really important in recovery because you know my experience was that when I I got sober in 1985, and I was just like kind of like many of us, I was desperate to just like how am I? Get, I really need to change my life, and and. I really took on working the program, not right away, but once I kind of fully engaged in it, I really took on just doing what my sponsor said and doing what people said. And, you know, and that worked for, for years, for several years. And a lot of healing happened, a lot of change happened, a lot of growth happened. And then it got to a point where like, having people tell me what to do wasn't really, didn't feel, really feel right anymore. And I I needed to make some of my own decisions, and I needed to have my have a, a, a spiritual life that was going to resonate more deeply with my own experience, my own uh, kind of uh, sensibility. And th- then, you know, I was moving into what we call it second stage recovery. You know, six or seven years sober, and and um, and that was when my Buddhist practice, which had been around for many years, but had kind of been just on simmer, kind of got cranked up, and, and I had to move into a different uh, way of being in recovery. And I've just seen so many people who have gone through these different stages, and, and if you get to that point where what worked in the beginning isn't working anymore, but you don't have a sense of somewhere else to move... It, that can be a really dangerous time for relapse or else just falling into this rigid fundamentalist approach to recovery where there, there really isn't a sense of freedom or happiness, but you're, at least you're not drinking, you know, kind of thing. And, and so that, that kind of openness to, to change and experience is so important. One of the things that I, I noticed early on after my after One Breath at a Time was published, uh, which I thought I was writing, writing for people who'd been sober for a long time who wanted to kind of uh, take another step in their spiritual life, I started to hear from and meet a lot of people who were new to recovery who were picking up my book and people who were coming to my workshops who were pretty new. 
And I wondered why that was. And then I started to realize that one of the reasons was that when you're new, you're very open. And you're going to the bookstore, like, looking for books. When you're six or seven years sober, it's like, yeah, I know the program. I mean, I got it, you know. I'm not going to go to Barnes & Noble for the recovery section anymore, you know. And, and so uh, there's that freshness, hopefully, and openness that comes uh, when we're new that sometimes gets lost. Um, and that, that willingness to keep growing because we kind of, we want something. Okay, we lock into something. Okay, this works. Hold on to this, you know. Of course, nothing works forever, so it keeps changing what works. We, yeah. So, yeah. The, um, first of all, thanks. I felt the speed of the exercise was interesting. Um, <laughs> the speed. It, it was awkward. It, it was like this, okay, I'm going to get this thought, I'm going to say this is why I'm going to be okay, and then five seconds later I'm going to be expected to come up Yeah. Very good. Yes. Good, good, good. Wonderful. Yeah. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe some of it'll come back on reflection. But yeah, but I appreciate that feedback. I mean, that's because that's helpful for me just in my own work with this. And um, you know, obviously, if it's in a book, it's going to be something that I'm going to say people can do it as an exercise, or they could write it down too. So you could uh, maybe have it more for for reflection. But but certainly part of this this kind of practice is meant to evoke that kind of thing where eventually you run out of things and so y- stuff starts to, it kind of breaks something open um, potentially. So sounds good. Thank you. Uh, there's a guy in the back who's got his hand up. Yeah, thank Yeah, thank you. Um, I was amazed by the sort of part of it where somebody would say, yes, you'll be okay. Uh-huh. That to me was the best part of the exercise. Uh-huh. Good. Even though the person was supposed to say that. <laughs> I mean, but, but him saying it felt very healing and very, um, very comforting. Yeah. And, and it's something that I was thinking about in meditation and in 12-step. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get feedback. Mm. Something and I, I thought to myself, I need to carry this guy around all the time. I'm going to be okay every minute, you know, because I would feel a lot better about myself. I somebody tell me, yes, you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I was, you know, in fear, which is all the time, you know. So um, yeah. I was just curious how you thought of that and what you think about that in recovery. Yeah. Um. Well, I wanted it. I wa- I wanted the exercise that. There's a, this comes out of a, a practice called Diamond Heart, where it kind of the, the, idea, the, the structure of this, um, where you just where you're asked a question and you and you um, just say something, and then the other person, typically the other person says. Um, thank you, right? Thank you, and then right. And thank you, and then they, 
or maybe do they ask you the question? They ask you the question like, who are you or something like that? And then you say something and then they say, thank you, who are you or something. So, and so it's, it's typically a repeating question. And, and I just thought that that would be a natural, I mean, what would you say if somebody said, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be okay because I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, what are you going to say to them? No, you're not going to be okay. I'd really question that. You know. I just thought, I mean, nor- the normal thing to say is, yeah, yeah, you'll be okay. Sure, you're going to be okay. So I don't know. How did I come up with it? I don't know. It's spontaneously. Yeah, one more, and then I'm going to talk about higher power, maybe. Yeah, I've done that exercise also where you look at the person and you say, thank you, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So you just... Because this felt like a big thank you from my partner. Yeah. Saying, yes, you'll be okay. All very well. Because they made me really, really anxious. I was so calm from the meditation and mm-hmm. all that. And I was so, I felt my stomach. Yeah. And I was spectating breath. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm somebody who's in recovery almost as long as you. And, and felt those feelings of, I need something. I need a little. I'm sure I'm not drinking. That's great. That's great. But, uh, so your book has helped a lot, and also coming here, I want to put a plug-in for coming yeah. and doing a lot of work here, because really boosted my recovery. I, I just feel differently, so this has really widened me yeah. that space. Just coming this time again. Mm. So now that I'm saying how anxious I was, I feel better. Good. Feel, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I thought, I kept thinking, well, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but just Yeah, yeah. Thanks. All right. So I I want to um, kind of address the third step and higher power question before we. uh, I I don't know. I said twelve thirty for lunch. Now that seems too early. So anyway, if you, I hope you're not starving. But we'll just see how this plays out. Maybe it'll be a little later than that. The uh, certainly one of the big questions that comes up in my workshops, and I, and I know it's true just in the twelve-step world in general, is how to how to think about God or higher power, and and this you know, in the step two kind of introduces that idea, and, and and it seems like somewhat of a setup the way the steps are written. Well, you're powerless, but we've got a great power for you, so come on down, you know. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, you know, sort of understanding what what that's about, and that that idea of you know we're not in control, and yet uh, we have to find some way of of dealing with the world as it is. Find some way to um, to change, to grow, to to let go, to be happy, to heal. And so this is, you could say that's what the program and what's what the practice are about. So the, you know, my second book, A Burning Desire, is really trying to uh, talk about 
how Buddhist teachings and can be and practices can be thought of as a higher power and how that can work. And someone, uh, some of the people at my workshop at Omega this week were saying, you know, I read, read that book and as I was reading it, I totally understood it and it made total sense to me. And, but now I don't, can't really say what it is that higher power is that you said. What, really, what do you say? <laughs> like, well, maybe read it again. Now, uh, so, so I went and I kind of picked up the book just for myself to say, okay, well, how can I, how can I summarize this? What is it that I'm getting at that you, so you don't have to read 200 pages to kind of get it and, that, and then walk away still wondering? So I will say that the starting point and what I consider to be the key to understanding higher power from Buddhist perspective is the law of karma. And in fact, this is true really in virtually all religions, but uh, it's more explicit in Buddhism. So uh, what that means, the law of karma simply states that actions have results. You know, the word karma kind of has been misunderstood in our culture to mean fate, and sometimes it's used that way. It's just my karma, man, you know. Um, but the word karma actually just means action. So the law of karma is that actions bring results. More importantly, or to expand on that, because we have to build out from that, there is a... You know, there are relationships between types of actions. So ethical, moral actions bringing beneficial results. You know, selfish, self-centered, greedy actions bringing harmful results. This is the, the, the kind of, it's said that there's a moral fabric woven into the universe. This is, a, this is the one thing that I would say you have to believe you don't have to believe that there's a God, but if you believe that the, that the law of karma is random, that is, an action brings a result, but it could be anything, then you're not, you don't really believe in Buddhism. So what I'm talking about is that, so for instance, if I am mindful, it brings a positive result. If I am unconscious, not paying attention, it brings a destructive result. Ultimately, not, and this isn't like a, you know, a a simple formula that oh I, okay I was mindful for a moment. Now where's the goodies? Where do I get the good thing? Oh, I kind of spaced out. Oh my God! You know what's going to happen? It's not that simple. It's it's broader and it you know it has these broad implications in our lives. One of the things that the Buddha said is that you can't really unravel the results of karma to figure out why something happened exactly. It's way too complicated. Because for one thing, all of our karmas are running into each other. you know, And uh, we're not like just these independent entities. But in a general sense, if we live in harmony with the law of karma, things are going to tend to unfold in positive ways in our lives. So when we say we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, 
we can say, if I live in harmony, if I make an effort to live in harmony with the law of karma as I understand it, then I'm going to be cared for. The care of God is will be the results of that. Now, the, what the Buddha talked about was that because there is this law of karma, there are certain actions you should take to be in harmony with it. And that's the Eightfold Path. He said that you should have a right view. That is to say, you, should, you need to see how things work. You've got to understand the system. And fundamentally, that means see that clinging causes suffering. Okay? So that the way that you live in harmony with right view is that you see the truth. You see the Dharma unfolding in front of you. You're attentive to that. You know that everything is impermanent. So you, you just keep that eye out, okay? So that's being in harmony with right views, seeing things. Right view inspires right intention. Okay, I see how things work, so I'm going to try to live in harmony with this. So that's right intention. That's the action we take to be in harmony with right intention. Setting my intention is not enough. I have to actually live this. And that means taking certain actions. So the three aspects of the Eightfold Path that have to do with our daily lives, right speech, right action, which is the moral precepts, right livelihood. So in order to live in harmony with the higher power of the law of karma, I need to use my speech in skillful ways. Obviously a challenge. This is our practice. I need to follow these moral precepts, not to kill, not to steal, not to harm others with my sexuality, not to harm others with my speech. Again, speech shows up twice. And to not use intoxicants. But this is being in harmony with the law of karma. The law of karma says that if I kill beings, there will be negative results. If I take things that are not, do not belong to me, there will be harmful negative results. If I harm others with my sexuality, there will, pain will be the result of that. If I use intoxicants, I will tend to break all the other precepts. Now, I want to point out that the results of, of actions are not... We think of sometimes the law of karma as like, oh, I, was, I, I did good things. I got a park, the parking space. Or I got a job. Or I, you know, I won the lottery because of my good karma. So notice that that's all about external things. And we so often sort of project like karma is all about like the external things. And it's not always so clear. Hey, wait a minute. That gangster is a millionaire and he never got arrested. You know, how did he get away with that? Well, uh, karma, that that to me is sort of the gross and obvious aspect of karma. But karma is actually happening every moment with every intentional thought, word, or deed. There is an internal result 
So that when you are selfish, you feel that. When you are generous, you feel that. When you hurt someone or steal something, there's an internal experience of that. When you're kind, there's an internal experience. So there's immediate karma in this way. And to me, this is actually the more important form of karma than did I get the job or did I get the relationship or the car. Because where is happiness experienced? What is happiness? It's an inner experience. You know, you can have all that stuff and not be happy. There's lots of people who have all the stuff and they aren't happy because they're not actually creating good karma for themselves with their intention, with their view, with their actions. So look within for the karmic results in each moment and you'll see it. And then how it plays out in the long term, you know, the law, again, the law of karma is very complex. There, you know, some things come to fruition over long periods of time. Um, and you don't really see the positive results for many years. So you, you're not in control of all that. But if you really want to see whether something is karmically skillful, just look within in that moment and see how it feels. So the last three aspects of the Eightfold Path are right effort, which is about not grasping, in, in, in particularly in meditation, not striving, but then not just sitting back and whatever. You know, it's this balance of kind of being of engagement without grasping. Very challenging, right effort. Right mindfulness, which we've already been talking about, but just to, to try to be present moment by moment. To not try not to judge ourselves moment by moment. To be patient moment by moment. To forgive ourselves moment by moment. And then right concentration, which is just to be stabilize the mind, to be still, to be able to maintain mindfulness. So it's easy to be mindful for a moment, difficult to sustain mindfulness. And our culture is designed to break your concentration. One of the things that I notice, one of my just observations, and I try to keep it as a practice, is when I'm in the checkout line to notice if it's possible for the checkout person to sustain their attention to me through the entire transaction. It rarely happens. They usually, the phone rings or someone comes up to them or they start, to, and it's so difficult. You know. I, cell phones, you know, and now, as somebody was saying up at Omega, now we're finding sidewalk rage because people are like bumping into each other because they're all looking at their phones. And the one that I like, I'm trying to come up with the name, but it's something like cataphonia. It's like when, you, when you're walking along and you stop, and just, you can be in the middle of the street and you stop. It's like cataton- when you're catatonic, you just stop. And, you know, you could be anywhere. You're halfway, and you're like up this, on the one step, and, you, and all of a sudden it's like... That's not right concentration. That's or right mindfulness or right effort. So all of this is pointing to the idea... Not of God is up there and is, and, and is going to judge me and fix you know fix me or curse me, but rather that there's there are powers 
They are impersonal powers. They are all founded in the power of karma. There is the power of right view, of right intention, right effort, right mindfulness, right action, right speech, right concentration. And then there is my relationship to all of them. Am I trying to live in harmony with them? Then I'm working a third step. I'm turning my will and my life over to them. I'm trusting that if I work in harmony with them, results will be good. Or am I trying to be in control and do it my way or you know, grasp at what I want? And that means I'm basically, I could say I'm turning away from God. I'm living out of harmony with God. It's interesting that the word that's translated as right intention, right view, the, the word that's translated as right, it's a Pali word, sama, S-A-M-M-A. And sama is actually related to the, a musical term for being in harmony. So it's, it's really, I really like that view. Rather than it's right or wrong, you know, it's wrong mindfulness or right mindfulness, but am I in harmony with that? And you can be a little off, out of tune, and, you know, and then you can kind of pull yourself up. And, and, it's, kind of, and, it, and it, it's got a gentler feeling, and it really is what it feels like. Oh, right, like I'm kind of in a flow now. It's like being in harmony. So this is one aspect of the Eightfold Path, that, uh, uh, I mean, of, of the higher power, what I call, you know, Dharma God. Um, there are other aspects of the Dharma, loving kindness, compassion. These are all very powerful elements of the Dharma. Again, activated by the law of karma um, that we can either be in harmony with or out of harmony with. The truth of impermanence. We can be in harmony with that, just naturally going, okay, everything is changing. Or we can be like, no, I don't want things to change. I've got to hold things, keep them the way they are. So again, we're either in harmony with those or we're in conflict with them. This to me, this is how I view higher power. This is how I view step three. There's no person involved in or being. It's, these are just impersonal forces that really don't, they don't care about you and they don't not care about you. They don't, they're not involved on that level. They just exist like the law of gravity. The law of gravity doesn't really care if you fall down. It's just its job to pull things toward, you know, the earth, it's like, it's a big thing, I'm pulling things, that's just how gravity works. It doesn't go, sorry, ha ha, you know, or this is, a, this is a punishment for you, you know, stepping off that sidewalk. No, it's just, it's just what it is. And I, I think it's difficult for us to get to that point with, with God because we think that the word God is the name of somebody. And that's how it's been used. Jehovah, you know, Allah. We're naming somebody. Really, we're just naming something or some things. If we're going to use a pronoun for God, I think the pronoun I use is it. Turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood it. It kind of there's something that happens just like cognitively when I hear that. When I refer to God as it, it definitely changes something there. So I offer that to you to use as you like. 
So if you got that straight now, nobody, I won't, and that, we're, I'm not, no, no, no questions, because if that wasn't clear, you're just not getting it, okay? No, I, if there are any questions, this would be the time. Now would be the time. Yes. Um, humans are, you know, when humans are unconscious, they are operating on th- what the Buddha called three poisons. Greed, hatred, delusion. Delusion. And delusion is just not understanding what causes suffering. Not understanding the Dharma. So these are, you know, fundamental, more, I, I'd almost say more animal instincts than human instincts. I like, uh, um, but they are also human instincts since we are animals. But, you know, they come out of the lower centers of the brain, we could say, essentially. Survival instincts that really aren't interested in morality, um, that don't sort of have that level of consciousness. So when we're operating on that lower level of consciousness, it's just all about getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, controlling things. Uh, Yeah. Greed, hatred, and delusion. It's just what people do. uh, I I certain, you know, the idea of Dharma as a higher power has nothing to do with, uh, you know, a loving God. I mean, I, I frankly have never understood that phrase I, because, it imp- wh- because of that very thing. Well, well, then what the hell, what about all this other stuff? You know, uh, what's, you know, does that mean there's, the, then the devil is doing all that other stuff or something? And, and, and of course, it never made any sense. And you know, like, if God is all powerful, then why does, why does he let the devil do that stuff? And he, well, it's so that we can test you. Just like, oh, stop it. You know, it's just, you know, that's just the theological mumbo jumbo. You know, it's just, it's new, it's just the way it is. You know, it's just the way stuff is. There was no, there was no like, you know, per, uh, creator that decided, well, I'm going to set up the world like this and screw with people's heads, you know, so they'll, you know, I mean. In, t- in, in terms of the victim, say, and karma, no- Well, tr- in traditional Buddhist teachings... You know, they would say, well, it's something they did in their past lifetime. That's really dangerous thinking, as far as I'm concerned. The way I view it is that, and, and this, is, this is indeed also a traditional teaching, that 
we aren't responsible for everything that happens in our lives. Sometimes other people are responsible for things that happen in our lives, you know, like an infant who's being abused. It's not like, oh, well, I, and, you know, again, I mean, this you're, we're getting into belief systems, you know, and the one, you know, traditional, again, belief system is that, yeah, there's l- multiple lifetimes, and I don't, I don't believe in reincarnation. I also don't not believe in reincarnation. I just don't have a, I don't know, you know. I mean, the Buddha was very, you know, clear about it. And, and um, you know, d- devout Buddhists and most of the monastics I know believe literally in reincarnation. And that's fine. But none of us have any proof. So, you know, I think t- that... If we take the stance that, well, it's something you did in your past life, so tough. You know, that's, that's abandoning the fundamental, to me, much more fundamental Buddhist teaching, which is compassion. You know? And when I look at, just pr- practically speaking, you know, if a drunk is, you know, driving down the road and crashes into me, and I'm being very awake and aware, but, and I try to avoid them, but they hit me anyway, it's not, I don't really think that that's my karma playing out. I think that what it is, is their karma playing out, you know? And there's just, like I said, our karma bangs into each other. That's, that's how I view it. Because, you, know, you know, we're born in certain circumstances that we don't choose, that we don't have any control over, and, and we try to live and make our lives the best we can out of that. But, uh, you know, uh, the Buddha said this, and Bill Wilson said this, which is to focus on these questions that are beyond our knowledge is to distract us from the fundamental teaching, which is be present here and now. The truth is that the only way you can affect your karma is right now. You can't affect anything that's happened in the past. You can't go into the future and fix things up. All you can do is be present here and now, and, the, and you are creating karma in this moment. So that's the only thing you need worry about. The rest of it, don't know. No. Yeah. Wait until the microphone comes because people are pretty far away from you in the back. My experience has been. Uh, you're, it's because you're right in front of the micro, the speaker. My experience has been um, step decision, you know, because that higher power has taken so many different forms in my lifetime. It's just what you've been talking about, which is decision to go forward to, you know, improve my character, you know, that a lot of my deeds and thoughts and actions were not based with compassion. I didn't learn compassion. Right. You know, I had no understanding of what compassion was because of my past. And through the process, you know, and growth, I've now learned to experience compassion because the blocks through the fourth step and five and living in the process of going to the universe, God, whatever the understanding has changed me over time. 
So now I have this opening, this path to my heart mm. that is really compassionate and giving, yeah. you know, without wanting anything back. So that's how I look at, you know, my third step and that belief that the process and other people, you know, have done this and got that kind of result. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah, thanks. Thank you. So you had your hand up? Yeah. with what she was just saying in terms of um, I, I liked what you were talking about in the beginning about compassion and sort of observance almost like, I think I'm like looking at things with like curiosity rather than judging yeah. but when we start to talk about karma and about kind of like being in the flow or not being flow, I, I know sort of know what you're talking about but how do we stop from sort of grabbing onto that in and of itself and sort of you know wanting that and, and versus you what you were just saying, sort of doing the thing and not expecting something in return. And really, to me, that seems more like uh, in the flow. You know what I'm saying? Where it, it, can, it can kind of turn into this grabby thing of like, well, I'm doing this because I want to have good karma. Right. Versus just doing it because that's what I want to do. That's a positive. Yeah. So how do we turn our understanding how do we live skillfully based on our understanding of karma without turning that into another form of grasping at positive karmic results is that the basic question we don't really we you know we I mean we cling to everything you know we cling to letting go you know what I mean Uh, so I mean that's just what we do and we just observe that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we. So I guess I guess I'm saying, don't worry too much about it. You know, if you're doing the right thing, you know, and there's some grasping in it. Okay, see if you can observe that and acknowledge that. Rarely are our intentions or our actions totally pure. I don't know when I don't know when they are at all, you know, um, but you know if you're doing the, I was, you know I'm, 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 I'm wanting to say if you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, it's you know it's not actually it's not really a good idea, but uh, it sounds like it's okay, so I'm kind of confusing myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, for me, it just, it again, comes back to the exp- just like when we're meditating. I'm sitting down. I'm trying to meditate. I follow my breath for 10 seconds. And then I space out for five minutes. And then I realize, oh, wait, wait, I'm spacing out. I come back. And then I follow my breath for another five seconds. And then I space out for another three minutes. And... Um, you know, most of uh, most of our spiritual practice is failure or imperfection. You know, the spirituality of imperfection is a great title, uh, book book title. And and uh, the, what's amazing is that just a little bit of getting it right is very powerful. 
and transformative. Uh, you know, even if I do the tracing back recovery, I see that, you know, I was screwing up a lot, but there was just enough of not screwing up to get sober. And it's the same with mindfulness. I mean, you know, on my best day, I'm probably mindful for 10 minutes, you know. And, but wow, 10 minutes of mindfulness is incredibly powerful. And it, that is very transforming and changes life a lot. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's, you know, progress, not perfection. And we just keep looking and seeing it. And, and uh, again, the key is to see where, when you create suffering. And if you're creating suffering by trying to be a good person and tr- grasping it, then, you're, you know, hopefully you'll see that some. So, so okay, one, one more question, and then we're going to start to move towards lunch. There's a woman over here has it. And that means that if I take the right actions and do all of those things, then I won't get into the kind of trouble that I've got into in the past because of my own doing. Okay, so that's that's clear. However, okay. it doesn't mean that bad things are not going to happen. That's true. That, that's when, true. And this is how like I feel like it's lacking compared to people who think if I believe in God, I'm going to be everything's going to be wonderful and I'm going to be safe. It doesn't stop the fear that I have, like, bad things are going to happen. Instead, I have to learn how to sort of accept that bad things are part of life. Do you know know what I'm saying? So you're comparing having a... yeah. Like the Dharma as a higher power to someone who has yes. who believes that God is going to like make sure that everything yeah, is okay. I, mean, I have a certain jealousy, and I feel like some like I wish I had that because it it would be nice to. Believe you mean you them. wish you could still be deluded? Yeah, I do. You know, I do. In some I way, wish I, I could just, still drink and sleep yeah. with everybody I met too, but yeah. it just didn't work. Because part bad things, like you said, are part of other people do bad things, and I might be the brunt of it. And also, just being alive, I'm going to get sick and die. There's a serious problem with life. As, as we know, the, yeah. the cause of death is birth. So, um, so there's something that, that makes life a little harder when you aren't... Yeah, it's, call, it's actually it's called spiritual maturity. And it, it is a challenge. It is easier to be a fundamentalist locked into delusion... On some level, it's easier, apparently. But we have a responsibility as people who are waking up to hold the truth and to develop equanimity around the truth. And this is the, one of the great challenges of this, this wisdom, of this vision. This is, you know, this is part of all spiritual traditions that those who have the eyes to see must have very large hearts that can hold the suffering that they see, that can hold the truth and the complexity and the the ambiguity of of the paradoxes of reality. This is it's a it's a great cha- challenge, but uh, if we if we want true freedom, this is what this is the price. 
that we pay for, for authentic freedom. You can have a false freedom. You know. yeah. That's a great question to end the morning on, I think. Uh, before we break for lunch, I'm going to talk about the tradition of generosity here at New York Insight and, uh, and how, that, how that works both uh, on a spiritual level and on, an, on a uh, practical level. Um, as you as you know, there's there's a charge for you to come in today. Although I believe they say no one's turned away for lack of funds. I hope yes, the, part of the tradition. Yeah, you know, the 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 tradition with monastics is that they were totally supported by lay people, and um, and so we've tried to figure out how to bring something of that practice into uh, a more of a lay teaching environment and a, a and a sangha that's not just based around. Um, Around, you know, the lay community and the monastic community, and the reason we've tried to do that—I mean, because they could just charge, you know, seventy-five dollars at the door and give me a percentage of that. I mean, at Omega, I get paid by the person that comes. I call it piecework. So, uh, and uh, you know, if you're in the garment industry, you know. Uh, you know, and that's, that's convenient, and you know, it's okay. Uh, but the thing is that uh, the reason we try to hang on to, and we are trying to hang on to some vestige of this tradition of generosity, of supporting the teachers through donation rather than through a percentage, uh, starts with the fact that the Buddha, the first thing he taught lay people was generosity. He didn't teach a meditation first. He didn't teach him the Eightfold Path first. The first thing he taught him was generosity because generosity in, in its many forms, not just the financial form, but you know, the, the, the form that Paul and Miriam's generosity today, uh, the, there are many ways to be generous. That he, the Buddha taught that because generosity is the most obvious way that we practice letting go. And it sh- gives people an immediate taste of the Four Noble Truths. Of clinging, of letting, of of letting go, and f- how freedom comes from letting go. So, so we wanted to bring that into the a Western culture that's not really designed for that. And uh, you know, m- most insight centers have felt that they needed to charge something in order to support the center, and so they've rather than just there are some that. You know, try to operate on purely on Donna, and it's it's tricky. So the uh, New York Insight is one of those centers, as many who have made the choice to okay, we'll charge just enough to cover our expenses, but then we'll off we'll say that for the teachers, and so they put you know they make us take the risk, you know. Uh, but anyway, that's that's okay, because it's also a practice for me, a practice of faith for me. To trust that you guys are going to, you know, appreciate what I've done, and that you know I've come here. I live in California. That I've come out here, and that I'm teaching, uh, saying, I hope this is useful, and give what you can. So there's a completely practical element of it from my viewpoint, which is I hope they give me a lot of money. You know, <laughs> that'll make my life easier. You know. Um, you know, and the reality that I actually support myself as a Dharma teacher, and that's been true for uh, entirely now for the last four years. Before that, I worked part-time for some years. 
Um, and if you're in the publishing industry, you know that I'm, the, I'm not getting rich from my books. Um, so, so it's important to me that you're generous, but that's my practice. <laughs> that's not your practice. Uh, and it's interesting. We have to uh, separate those things you know, to see that there is a reality and there's your reality. Your reality is what do you have? You know, what can you give? And, uh, and ha- what's your relationship to that? You, know, uh, you can give too much and create more suffering, right? You can give just a little bit and walk out going, oh, you know, and f- how do you feel about yourself? So the practice of generosity is, about, is, is a p- real practice. And, and it's, a, it's meant to be a joyful practice. So I really hope that you will find it joyful pleasant. Uh, uh, not the, oh, is this a no? Oh, God, I don't know. Sure. How much am I supposed to get? It's not about the amount. It's really not. Um, and I, I bring it up before lunch because I know sometimes people can't come back after lunch. Uh, so uh, I, will, I will talk about it a little bit before the end of the day as a reminder. But um, just to let you know, and there's a basket back there that says Donna, D-A-N-A. Uh, Sometimes when I have a guitar, I sing O'Donna for people. Uh, but uh, fortunately, I don't have a guitar today, so you, I won't subject you to that. But uh, it's strange because we have this language. It's Polly, you know, which is, you know, and then we've got Donna. We've got Polly and Donna. And it's like there are all these. But anyway, um, so I have my watch says 10 of 1. So let's take one hour. And we'll come back and do some more practice. And uh, thank you. Everybody got back so quickly. Um, hopefully you noticed that feeling like, oh, no, I don't want to be late getting back to the meditation. Cause Actually, I guess I said we were going to start at 10 of, so I forgot. Just was looking at the clock. Said, no, it's almost 2. It's almost time to start. That's right. Sorry. <clears throat> you notice that? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's sit for a little while. I, w- I was thinking not everybody would be back, and we, I would say, let's pretend we're meditating so the other people, when they come in, they'll be, like, really embarrassed that they're late. <laughs> and then you see, when you pretend you're meditating, it's just like actually meditating. <laughs> so let's just try, let's, let's just do that. Let's pretend we're meditating for about 20 minutes and see what happens. Settling into a comfortable posture. Pretending to relax. Just try to make it look as if you're relaxing.
pretending to pay attention to your breath. Or you could just pay attention to your breath if that's easier. After lunch is a good time to check in with our energy and with the body, noticing just the difference from the way you felt before eating, if you feel full or too full or not full enough. And as you're meditating, noticing if there's a after lunch energetic dip. Working with that with mindfulness and with the antidotes of investigation, of posture. And if you're starting to get sleepy opening the eyes, And really, as we practice at any time, it can be helpful to check in with these different elements of our experience, our energetic state, our posture. There's the sensations in the body. So we don't have to try to stay locked onto the breath. Let kind of use the breath as a reference point, a centering place. Well, from time to time, just opening or scanning our experience, and that might also include listening to sounds, noticing your mood or attitude. Sometimes we'll be able to detect our grasping or struggling in our meditation, judging ourselves, or perhaps a pleasant, easeful attitude or surrender. Just noticing these things. They come and go. No matter how long we've practiced, we aren't immune from the difficulties. And we have also, of course, we get to have some lighter or pleasant experiences as well. We can observe all of this as part of our broader awareness, our broader mindfulness.
Thoughts take different forms in our mind. Some are very easy to let go of when we simply become aware that we're thinking, the thought just dissipates. Other thoughts seem to be just rolling along, almost like noise in the mind. And even when we notice them, they keep going. Sometimes if they're not disturbing, we can just leave them alone, let them kind of scroll through the mind. And still actually be aware of the breath. Then there are those very sticky or painful thoughts, things that really hook us. Sometimes when it's a very persistent and difficult thought, it's better to drop the attention into the body rather than trying to engage on the cognitive level, but rather shift the attention into the visceral experience, which is often one of stress or anxiety or grief, some painful emotional, energetic state. And just by going to that feeling level, breathing into that, we'll have sometimes more success at letting go of the thought. the physical aspect of emotion tends to feed the mental aspect. And then the mental aspect triggers more feelings in the body. So to interrupt that loop, to just let your attention rest on the sensations breathing into and allowing them to be there fearlessly.
I think it's important to try to meditate at different times of day with different energy levels to just start to see. You know, there's a tendency to say, well, I like to meditate at such and such time and then you know, just meditate then when it's, you're just always, that's time, your best time of day. But sometimes it's good to challenge yourself to sit at those times when, when you are most likely to fall asleep or to be stressed or whatever so that you can kind of start to be familiar with those mind states those physical states, not be intimidated by them or uh, overwhelmed by them. I thought I would just um, at least start this afternoon by kind of talking about the next part of the 12 steps and uh, connecting that into this greater kind of spiritual path. The, you know, so after we've sort of made this commitment, turned our will and our lives over, um, you know, it would be nice, I mean, if if then God, God took care of everything then, because it's like, well, I turned it over to God. Wash my hands of that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.